You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Our text before us today comes from Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And as we open God's word, would we exalt his name together? Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. These are the very words of God. You could be seated, church. As Hans mentioned, the Apostle Paul penned these words to the church at Corinth. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. And this is really the aim, the goal of all of our lives as believers. To behold Christ, to behold Christ and enjoy and in worship of him to be transformed into his same glorious image. If we're talking about the glory of God, the epicenter of God's glory is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, Christ, as the author of Hebrews says, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so today, as we move through this last sermon on the supremacy of Christ, we do the same. We behold Christ. We behold him and worship him in the splendor of his glory and his majesty. As we briefly recap this series together, recall with me, church, all that we have seen and tasted. We set out in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, As we saw that Christ is preeminent. 
He is preeminent with all power and authority over all of creation and over the church, his new creation. We then zoomed out and saw this sweeping overview of both Old and New Testament. The mission of God in the church honed in and focused on seeing and savoring Christ and understanding that from Genesis to Revelation, everything centers and hinges on Christ himself. From evangelism to missions, from discipleship to biblical counseling, we have seen that Jesus Christ is the center of it all. Whether it's vocations, local church life, culture, anxiety, or rest, we have been exhorted and reminded once again that there is not one nook and cranny in all of the universe where Christ's supremacy does not reach. And so therefore, Christ is not merely with us sometimes or most of the time, but he's with us even to the end of the age, always. So the next question that pops into my head is, to what end? Where is this leading? Where does the supremacy of Christ take us as we, his church, look to the future? And so it's a good thing we don't have to take a stab in the dark because this has been revealed to us in his holy word, which is why we're in the book of Genesis, rather Revelation, the exact opposite this morning. And we see our destiny as believers, where it is that we are going. And so that brings us right to the burden of this text. The burden of this text, this greeting before us from the Apostle John is this. To evoke Christ-exalting worship and steadfast anticipation of his glorious return. What John is doing here in this text is he is evoking Christ-exalting worship and steadfast anticipation of his glorious return. Shorthand, this is the supremacy of Christ to the end. And so with that, with this aim of worshiping Christ and holding fast to him, would you draw your attention with me to verse 4? John to the seven churches that are in Asia. When approaching the book of Revelation, I don't know about you, but for me, it can be really overwhelming. Like if someone hands you a surfboard at the wedge when it's 20 feet and they say, have fun. That does not sound like fun to me. And so the book of Revelation can be daunting and overwhelming. It's fit within, a, in, within the genre of apocalyptic literature. So it's fraught with all sorts of symbolism and prophecy, and there's a lot to decipher. But what's really encouraging in the book of Revelation as a whole is that the most important things, the meat of the marrow, the main message and thrust of John's revelation is really easy to understand. In our passage this morning, we find ourselves at the beginning, the introduction, where John is writing to seven churches. John penned this letter as he was imprisoned by Rome on the island of Patmos, off of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. 
This would have been right off of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Western Turkey. John writes in verses 9 through 11 that as he is on this island, he received a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ and instructions to pen down what he saw. And what's really important about what John writes about in 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, is the context to which he's writing into. John says he's a partner in the tribulation as he's writing to these churches. The context is severe Christian persecution. Even he himself, he's writing imprisoned on this island. And so, according to most scholars uh, who study Revelation, the date of this letter would have been penned at the later end of the first century in the 90s, when the emperor of Rome, Domitian, would have been sitting on the throne. And Domitian was famously known for demanding widespread worship of him as a god. And so it makes sense that there's a conflict here because Christians worship the one and only true and living God. And so there's severe persecution which John is writing into. There's also a sense of urgency here in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John is writing that the time is near. That God's swift judgment against sin and wickedness is coming that he's going to bring lasting peace and deliverance through the blood of the Lamb, and that he is receiving and bringing his church, his people, into his presence for all of eternity. The time is near. And so, yes, Revelation is fraught with all sorts of symbolism and difficulties, but here's the main message that John is communicating to us. In this passage and in the whole letter, it's endure. Endure suffering. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. He's coming. He's coming really quickly. Let's keep reading as we see how John greets these churches. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And so in keeping with uh, the New Testament letters that we see, John's introduction and his greeting is very typical. He says, grace and peace. Right? We read this all over the New Testament letters. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to note that this grace and peace is not coming from the Apostle John. Grace and peace are not coming from some angelic being. But grace and peace can only come from God alone, the source of all grace. The source of all enmity, smashing peace by the blood of Christ. But it's interesting, John doesn't merely say grace and peace to you, but he elaborates. Grace to you and peace 
from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. This grace and this peace which John is using to greet the churches comes from none other than God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is our triune God here in this text. First we see God the Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Certainly, John would have had in his mind the self-declaration and description of God to Moses in Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God the Father, the one who transcends all space, matter, and time. As we read here in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not merely the Alpha to Gamma or the Alpha to Kappa. He's the Alpha to Omega. And he transcends everything. This is where grace and peace are coming from. To you, churches. That's what John is saying. Second, we see here the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And so remember Revelation as an apocalyptic literature piece has so much symbolism woven in and through this letter. And so to see this reference of the seven spirits who are before his throne would have made sense to the first century listener. For us, it's harder to understand. But just imagine the Apostle John teleporting to the 21st century and we give him an Instagram account and he's reading all about Chuck Norris memes and has no idea what's going on. Right? We understand it. We get it because we understand the context. And we've all seen Walker, Texas Ranger, right? And we understand the genre of meme literature. But John wouldn't have understood. And so that's similar but reverse for us. And so when we see here John say, seven spirits who are before his throne, we can understand that grace and peace come only from God. And so it is fitting that this is God, the Holy Spirit, the one who is perfect, the one who is complete and full. That's what this reference to seven is symbolizing. And of course, we see here in this opening greeting, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings, on earth. It's amazing in this letter, you can throw a stone anywhere and you'll land on an Old Testament reference or allusion. Some scholars say there's up to a thousand different allusions to the Old Testament in this letter. And here, in this beautiful description of who Jesus Christ is, John is actually borrowing language from the psalmist, from Psalm 89. This should be up on the screen. Psalm 89, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn 
the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89.35 Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Faithful witness. Firstborn from the dead. Highest of the kings on earth. What is John saying here? He's saying that as faithful as the moon is in the sky, so is Christ faithful. The long-awaited king from the line of David, who trampled death underfoot in his glorious resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, the one who has all might and right and power and authority, That's who this Jesus is. This way to open the letter to greet the churches is no mere formality or filler. This is rock solid substance. This is really the way to start a letter to the churches. And so what's the point? What about this for us? Brother and sister, I can promise you, because Jesus promised us, that in this life you will have tribulation. But Jesus also said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Trinity is yours. You're not alone. Grace and peace to you, church. From God the Father, the transcendent one. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who has no beginning and no end. He is yours. Grace and peace to you from him. Grace and peace to you from God the Holy Spirit. The one who has filled you with himself to be able to understand his very word. To apply the blood of the cross to your life. To manifest himself in the church as we see His life on display through the gifts. Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful son of David, the one who defeated death. He is yours. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are not wasted words. This is the ballast of the ship for our encouragement hope and comfort in all of the storms of life. And as John transitions to the next portion of this greeting, he can't help but not focus in and hone in on the epicenter of our salvation, Jesus Christ and his work for us. Look with me at the second half of verse 5. To him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him, to Jesus, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood shed 
on the cross. Do you see the balance here between his dominion and his devotion? We just read that Christ is the king over every king on earth. And in light of that, really this king of kings loves us and gave his own life for us? Yes. What kind of king of a nation would ever die in your stead? Certainly not Domitian of Rome, but our king is different. Jesus is no ordinary king who delegates the heavy lifting to others, but he is the one, as Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle John is drawing the seven churches and subsequently us to the apex, to the climax, to everything for our salvation, to Christ himself, the one who knew no sin, yet for us, he became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the hinge. This is everything. The blood of Christ shed for sinners, him taking our punishment upon himself. And this is love. This is the definition of love. As the apostle John would say in his first letter, not that we loved God. That's not impressive. Not that we loved God, but God loved us and gave himself up for us to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. What kind of king would do that? None other than the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain to receive all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Therefore, don't bow down. Don't bow down to any emperor. Don't bow down to anyone or anything or any temptation or any sin. You're so free in Christ. You don't have to, church. And it doesn't stop there. In the words of our friend, Ed Welch, that would be enough. That would be enough. And yet it doesn't stop there. John elaborates. Verse six. In light of the freedom from sin and cleansing through the blood of Christ, therefore Jesus made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A lot can be said here about the priesthood of all believers that we see here in this text. One thing that I will say is the significance of what it meant to be a priest in the old covenant. The priest stood as a sort of mediator. There was a select group of individuals from the tribe of Levi 
who would represent the people before God, who would enter into God's presence and offer sacrifices for his sin and for the sins of the people. So he would act as a mediator, representing the people to God. And he would also act as a mediator, representing God to the people. He would come out of the tabernacle, out of the temple, and say, your sins are forgiven. Yahweh has forgiven your sins. But once again, this was only relegated to a select group of individuals, a privileged hierarchy. And so what the Apostle John is saying to us here is earth-shattering. That you, church, have been made into a kingdom to be priests before God his Father. You have access to God. You can go into his presence. You have full access because of the blood of Jesus. This is huge. No more veils. No more exclusion. Every single believer has been made a citizen in the kingdom of God. And every citizen in the kingdom of God has been made a priest. We have access to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4 verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And notice with me, John is very intentional about the order. He does not say, you've been made a kingdom of priests, therefore Christ's blood has cleansed you. He does not say that. The only way we as believers have access to God as priests is because Jesus, our great high priest, went first. He offered his own life as a bloody sacrifice so that we could go free and so that we could draw near. That's what he's done. This is glorious. It's too much to comprehend. And it makes sense that John, in the following sentence, he can't help but praise God and break out into doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus, the one who is the Davidic king, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of every single ruler, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To Jesus, who has granted vile sinners like us to have access into the throne room of God by the blood of Christ. To him be power and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But once again, the question posed at the beginning is, where does this lead us to? Christ is supreme. We've seen that in this series. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. We see it here in this text. There's no shadow of a doubt. Christ is ruling and reigning. And what does that mean for us, the church? Look with me at verse 7. As John draws our attention to something more massive and spectacular than we could ever hope or imagine. Behold, Behold, he is coming with the clouds 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. John drops a bomb here in verse 7. Jesus' first coming, he came as a baby. The eternal second person of the Trinity took on flesh, was born in Bethlehem in a stable. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But here, in this verse, he's going to come riding on the clouds. When John says in chapter 1, verse 3, that the time is near, this is what he's referring to. The time is near. Jesus Christ is coming back again with power and might. And once again, John is citing Old Testament. In this one verse, verse 7, he's actually citing two places. One in Daniel and one in Zechariah. He can't get enough Old Testament. And in Daniel 7, it's this famous vision of the Messiah who's going to come riding on the clouds, who's going to receive all honor and adoration from every people and tribe and nation. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, this should be up on the screen. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Zechariah 12, verse 10. This should also be up on the screen. On that day, there shall be Sorry, rather, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn over him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Drop down to chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So going back to our text in Revelation 1, we see him coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, those who've pierced him through from every nation and tribe and tongue. We see John weaving together both Daniel and Zechariah to communicate one reality, one point, that Christ is coming and in him coming, this is gracious and merciful. He is pouring out his grace and his mercy to those who mourn, to those who lament and wail and weep over their sins. And so, You might be wondering, and you might be confused, as I was wondering and confused. Wait, isn't verse 7 
this cataclysmic vision of the, the Son of God coming to execute judgment on sin and wickedness? Isn't that what this scene is in verse 7? No doubt will the coming of Christ evoke terror and judgment for those who do not trust upon him. Actually, the, whole, the majority of the book of Revelation is about his righteous judgment and wrath against sin. From chapter 6 to chapter 20, we see the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and all of it is pointing to his judgment, his righteous judgment against sin. So yes, Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. But this passage, this verse, verse 7, this is all about the mercy and grace of God. What kind of king would lavish mercy and grace upon those who have pierced him through? This is an otherworldly kind of king. Once again, the coming of Christ will either be the best day in your life for all of eternity or the worst day of your life for all of eternity. Those who are found mourning over their sin, mourning over piercing Christ through, will be met with mercy and grace and peace. Those who are found at peace with their sin and nonchalant with their sin of piercing him through will be met with eternal mourning. So as the church, what do we do? As the church, what do we do in light of this? We do what John tells us to do. Behold. That word literally means look. Look, behold, watch, wait with eager anticipation of Christ's return, of mercy and grace being finally and ultimately poured out on those who mourn and wail over their sin. Turn with me in your Bibles to the end of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Church, look, behold, the outcome of your faith. Then I saw, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things 
have passed away. As Jamie and I were talking this week about heaven and longing together for the day when we will see Christ face to face, for the day where this Revelation 21 reality will be realized, Jamie reminded me of this wonderful scene from The Lord of the Rings where Pippin and Gandalf, two characters, are on the brink of battle and they have this massive battle encroached around them, impending death at their doorstep. And here's how the conversation goes. Pippin said, I didn't think it would end this way. End, Pippin? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores and beyond. A far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, said Pippin, that isn't so bad. No, said Gandalf. No, it isn't. Church, grace and peace to you from God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one whom we will dwell with forever and ever. And he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more grief or sorrow, for the former things would have passed away. That's not so bad.